Welcome. This is a brief history of power. We're doing a solo episode. I'm doing a solo episode this week, and I'm going to look at a very recent listener question that just has particular pertinence. So for that reason, I'm going to give it its own hour. If for some reason I don't occupy the whole hour, then we have a bunch of other listener questions. You guys have sent in a ton recently and keep them coming. They are fantastic. I have one that I think I'm really going to enjoy a listener request for a cities episode on Detroit. If you have a city that you want me to talk about, just send in a request. Those are always fun. I always learn so much doing them. Even the Denver one, I learned a little bit. But yeah, send them in. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you're interested in hearing about. Colonel Grills and Pastor Fisk know their own things about cities too. So those are always fun to do. But the one that we're going to take this week, we're doing just because of the timeliness of the question. So here's the question, and then we'll start out with a couple distinctions, and we'll tell some stories and and explain where all this came from. The question is this from Sarah. Hello, your podcast is mine and my husband's favorite podcast. Thank you, Sarah. It's my favorite podcast too. I was wondering if you could do a podcast on the rise of Zionism. We are seeing again with everything going on in Israel slash Palestine. So many Christians fall for this and have scripture to feed back to them and how to converse would be much appreciated. Thank you, and God bless you in your ministry. Thank you so much, Sarah. What I'm going to do is talk about the rise of Zionism, both Zionism without an adjective in front of it, its varieties then, especially in modern Israel, and talk also about Christian Zionism, which is the reason that most Christians specifically would be necessarily supporting one side in a fight between Israelis and Arabs of various kinds, including Palestinians, Lebanese, Syrians, whatever else. And we'll talk about scripture in terms of response because the scripture really is not that complex, but it does all rely on not even necessarily dispensationalism, not that, you know, not that all Christians are really necessarily aware of all of the implications of what they're saying, but it does rely on a basic mistake in let's say the letter to the Galatians about what Israel means. And because of that, all of the promises that in the Old Testament are given to Israel and summed up in Christ and transferred through Christ to believers, to the church, so that Paul can say, peace be upon the Israel of God and mean the church. That's basically just not understood. So we pay every time we have a debate like this or controversy about this, we really pay for Christians' general ignorance of the Old Testament and how the Old Testament fits into the New. That's the basic issue. We'll get there at the end. I want to talk for the benefit of everybody about the definition of Zionism, where it came from, why it came up, what it was, and why in a previous question episode, I defined Israel as an artifact of 19th century nationalism. So I'll try to keep my adjectives straight or try to give you enough context so that when we're using nouns that mean two different things like Israel in the Bible, peace be upon the Israel of God versus modern nation state of Israel, I'll try not to say too many circumlocutions like modern nation state of Israel. And hopefully you'll just be able to figure it out as we go along. Some of that same confusion, honestly, is in the Bible because Israel in the New Testament sometimes means ethnic Jews, you might say. Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile, Jesus says to Nathaniel. But also it means God's people, which is the church. A simple way to keep these things straight is that when it really matters, Israel is defined by faith in the same way that Abraham is defined by faith. So if you are not of faith, you are not of the household of God. So if you don't have faith in the Christ, then you are not of the household of God, whatever ethnicity you may be. This is kind of simple Galatian stuff. This should be simple stuff for Protestant Christians of any kind, certainly for Lutheran Christians. But I understand it's difficult. It's confusing. The news says one thing. The Bible, which we don't know enough of, says another. I get it. Let's start by talking about Zionism as a term where it comes from how it gets connected to the modern nation of Israel or state of Israel. That's actually what it calls itself, the state of Israel. And from there, we'll go into 
coming back to some of these Bible questions since we have that brief answer that if you understand Galatians, you get the answer to these things. If you don't, you don't. Zionism is a fairly modern term, and it's first connected very publicly as a term to a book that comes out in 1896 called The Jewish State by Theodore Herzl. Theodore Herzl lived and died in what is what was then called Austria-Hungary or the Austrian Empire at a fairly young age, uh, 1860 to 1904. So his life is really not that long. But he's called, even now especially, that he's been reburied on Mount Herzl in Jerusalem, a place he didn't see himself. He's called the Josese Hatzion, the visionary of Zion meaning he saw things that others could not see and laid the foundations ideologically or spiritually for the modern nation of Israel. So who was he and why did he write this? 1897, 1896, 1897 is not an accident. That is right after a large series of conflicts between Eastern European Jews, so not exactly where Herzl is, but points farther east, particularly in the Pale of Settlement, then controlled by the Russians. We would now call it parts of Poland and Ukraine and Belarus, but that's controlled by Russians at the time. And persecution of Jews, as well as Jews themselves not being the best friends to everyone around them. There's always two sides to all these stories. And one way to understand these things, and a lot of what informs today's episode, is reading in both Yiddish and Hebrew literature that I've done that enables you to see things more from the inside. Generally, when we talk about the history of Jewish people or Judaism or Zionism specifically, people are talking about it from a very outside perspective. Like I've said before, either if you have other languages or if you can just read, say, the Times of Israel, you'll get a different perspective on things, a more inside perspective. Go read the tablet. That'll help you see how Jews are talking to each other about these problems. So if you read Isaac Basheva Singer novels that are originally in Yiddish, or you read things written in Hebrew or just a national European language, but written by Jews for Jews, you're going to get a different side of this story. So there is, there is persecution of Jews. Jews are moved around and hunted by various groups, especially Cossacks, who are sort of a special group of Russian troops, as well as their own ethnicity. But what's also going on is not going on for no reason, okay? So there is, to say it this way, and Herzl is very clear about this in the Jewish state, there is unending tension and conflict, unending tension and conflict. It's not an accident that Herzl lives in Central Europe and that the conflict that sparks a lot of this thinking, as well as some of the first mass settlement by European Jews and what's now Israel, are going to come out of Central and Eastern Europe. In Western Europe, the Jewish population is proportionally much smaller and had been, the word that's always used is emancipated at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, meaning they can live anywhere they want and be anyone they want, and that their segmentation or segregation that's common in the European Middle Ages is over. What that really led to in the two biggest Western European communities, Germany and France, was a high degree of assimilation. The thing that happened because of assimilation, meaning not only assimilation to manners or that Karl Marx was baptized in a Lutheran church, but that it meant, as it means today, and a lot of American Jews' fears for Jewry in America is that their their people as a people will disappear. I want to be clear that something to watch here in both that fear about disappearing through intermarriage and in the earliest and enduring expression of Zionism is that this really has to do with demography. It's it's a pure function of demography. If an American Jew, as he is likely to do, both in the 19th century, but especially today, marries somebody who is not a Jew and then doesn't raise his kids as Jews, being Jewish then becomes essentially just another ethnicity with no particular national claims in a modern nation state like the United States or France and definitely no particular religious claims. And in fact, it was fairly common in the 19th century into the 20th for Jews to eventually become Christians of various kinds, particularly Episcopalians. 
the oldest, one of the oldest flags in the U.S. Army is called the Marco flag, M-A-R-K-O-E. And that flag for the first city troop for the cavalry, that's a Pennsylvania National Guard unit. Marco is an old Sephardic Jewish name. The Marco family had before that become assimilated with English descended Episcopalians in Philadelphia. And the family is just sort of part of old Philadelphia gentry, like the Wharton family or the Pepper family. So you're dealing with something where you have assimilation. And at that point, Jews are going to become something like French Huguenots among South Africans or Dutch or Germans, like we talked about colonial populations in America. They become completely culturally and religiously assimilated to the larger population, which is European of some kind and, and Christian of some kind. The fear that that would just keep happening drove not so much popular movement in Germany, France, and the UK, your biggest Western Jewish populations, as funding. So a lot of the funding for early Zionist efforts is going to come from Western Europe as well as, to some extent, the United States of America. A lot of the impetus, both to be politically organized and the impetus to then settle in what they were increasingly calling Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, or Zion for the place Zion, a hill in Jerusalem that came to stand for the whole land from which we get the word Zionism. A lot of the people who would actually invest themselves, not money, but themselves in their lives, were going to come from Eastern and Central Europe because the difficulty of being a Jewish nationalist in such a place was higher there, as well as the population, proportionately, was higher there than anywhere in Western Europe or the US. So if funding is going to come from wealthy Jewish communities and still does to this day into Zion and Zionism, the people to staff those things or to populate those places were going to come largely from Central and Eastern Europe. They were in that way not that different in the 1890s or before from lots of other nationalist movements. And, and I made that point briefly, but it's helpful to understand this is that if you go look at particularly the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you'll find all kinds of varieties of nationalism. Pan-German nationalism, Austrians and Germans thinking they should all be together. Little German nationalism, what we would largely now call modern Germany. Czech nationalism, all kinds of nationalisms in a incredibly ethnically diverse empire in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So this is one place to go if you want to study the thesis, diversity is our strength, because what diversity seems to have done to the Austro-Hungarian Empire has made it not only politically weak, because every question could not be settled in terms of what, what's a good idea, but basically who is there, right? What we might now call affirmative action with racial categories in the US is practiced extensively in almost all parts of public life in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in ethnic terms, and Jews being, in that case, not seen religiously differently, particularly, but ethnically differently. All of that means that Zionism bears a lot of the same marks of intellectual background and political activism with lots of other pieces of ethnic advocacy and political activity. So among those marks that are going to happen is to be organized throughout Eastern and Central and eventually Western Europe, as well as the United States and Canada in by a group first called the Zionist Organization, now today called the World Zionist Organization. What that group as it begins to coalesce is going to do after its first Congress in 1897 is to try to put together realistic proposals for a Jewish homeland. Herzl's Der Judenstadt was, not, was obviously written in German, obviously not Hebrew, which doesn't exist as a modern language at that point, or Yiddish, which they thought of as too parochial. But it wasn't as nearly geographically specific as you might think today. So partly because of the news, you might be aware of various places in modern day Israel or Gaza or the term the West Bank, which is contrasted with the East Bank, which revisionist Zionists are going to want to take as well for themselves. What they now have in controlling the Palestinians is for 
for all of it for revisionist scientists not enough so at the time at first geography isn't really the issue a place for jews to be together and self-governing is the issue and there are lots of proposals and some of them are sort of wild a jewish homeland in what's now uganda a jewish homeland in madagascar a jewish homeland maybe somewhere on the prairies of canada or the u.s all kinds of ideas that people throw out there there are a bunch of reasons that they settle on what is now the state of israel and the chief among them is that zionism although it arises in the very late 19th century in austria-hungary is not without predecessors there were people not only who had lived there from antiquity not not really a terribly large jewish population in palestine but they had been there under ottoman rule and that that group of jews and we'll talk about ethnic diversity among jews later in the hour but that group of jews generally called mizrahi jews or middle eastern jews had been there from long before and they're called in zionist terms the old yeshuv the old settlement the old dwellers from the hebrew word for dwelling somewhere or staying somewhere or living somewhere what's going to happen in the 1880s so even before herzl's work which was originally written to prepare for a speech to the rothschild family the french branch of that family in order to gain funding for his proposal even before that a decade or two decades before you begin to get what will be called in retrospect the new yeshuv so these are jews who are technically speaking they are immigrants to the ottoman empire from europe specifically eastern europe and they are going there basically to be alone right to live outside the pale of European politics, where they will obviously always remain an ethnic and religious minority. So the goal really from the first, from the 1880s going into the 90s, and as these things pick up steam before the First World War, with numerous Zionist Congresses and lots of fundraising, because especially your Jewish diasporas in Western Europe and the US are comparatively very wealthy. They they always have been. So they're going to be funding people moving there and setting up what are largely agricultural communes so there's also an idea here which is connected to one of the hallmarks of zionism which is its connection to what you could call or what was called at the time race science meaning sort of an extrapolation from we might think of as genetics and ethnicity and history to what is the essence of a group and it wasn't race maybe in the really broad way that we use the term in america like are you black or asian or hispanic or white or indian or what are you right it was race almost in the sense that we would use the term for an ethnicity practically right so kind of a smaller group or a more focused group race science said okay and the father of all of this is a guy named arthur rupin r-u-p-p-i-n if you want to look him up this said that and so this is jews talking about jews right is what i'm summarizing right here that what you're dealing with with european jews or what are called ashkenazi jews are a people who are fallen upon hard times and that has been reflected in the way that they behave and that the way that they behave is essentially dishonorable because they are an alienated people we jews cannot become an honorable people a good people a moral people until we have our own land so the connection here is between figuring out who you are and then having territory to become the best version of yourself this actually extends in the case of rupin to a theory that jews are an admixture uh, ashkenazi jews specifically european jews are an admixture of a european people who lived anciently in the middle east that isn't as far-fetched as you might think i mean the hittites speak a an indo-european language so that's really that's not really that weird what what he just said but that they are an admixture of a european people with a semitic people and that the bad things about their nature are an expression of that semitic admixture which can be worked out 
right? So there's also an issue here of assertions about epigenetics. Like if you, if your grandfather went through something that has an effect in your life, but if you move to Israel and you begin to farm the land instead of being a clerk in a shop in a dark city in Eastern Europe, you will change into a different person and that will make your grandson much, much stronger. That idea is very powerful in Israeli history, right? So not just Zionism broadly, but Israel as a nation state specifically, is that you get a whole idea of the Sabra, who is someone who is born in the land, right? Capital L. And the Sabra is famously happier than his, you know, great grandfather somewhere in Galicia was. And he is taller and stronger. This is very important in the thinking of a guy named Max Nordau, who is one of the fathers of essentially modern bodybuilding and is one of the early fervent Zionists. So the idea here is that the people as a people exists, but in a, in a parlous, troublesome state, troublesome to themselves and troublesome to others. And that's one of Herzl's fundamental assertions is we can't really be at peace either with ourselves or other people until we have our own land. Okay. So that's the basic idea. At the beginning, that doesn't have a lot of political differences within itself because it has to survive. All of that is going to depend on an interrelationship between the diaspora, Jews who don't live in the land of Israel, and those who do settle in the land of Israel, which is going to be more and more and more all the time. So Zionism functions until the founding of the state of Israel in 1947 as really an, an immigrant advocacy movement, right? Going back to this idea of demography. How do they change? How do things change? Well, you have to get more people in there, right? You need to make it harder and harder and harder to ignore the Jewish presence in Palestine. Palestine, that's the political name, right? So I'm not picking sides here. Palestine, after Ottoman rule ends with their defeat in the First World War, will be commended in 1922 to British stewardship or mandatory oversight. So it's called the Palestinian Mandate, right? The British have a mandate from the League of Nations, which is the predecessor to the UN, to oversee Palestine for the benefit of all the peoples there, the Palestinians who are Muslim and Christian, as well as the Jews, as well as the others, the, the Druze, the Samaritans. But it's, it needs to be said that already in 1922, part of that mandate is to establish a homeland for the Jewish people. The extent of that, okay, how big that is relative to Palestine, how people have to live there, none of that is sorted out in 1922, or, or to be clear, <laughs> except in the minds of the Israelis in 1947. So, there is, however, because of a commitment made to the diaspora, specifically in the United Kingdom, in what's called the Balfour Declaration during the First World War, there is a commitment by the British to establish a, a nation state for Jews in the Middle East, even as early as 1922. So what happens in 1947 is the result of about a half century of very public, very intense pressure, particularly on Western governments. European governments, the American government, the Canadian government, as well as enormous amounts of funding drawn from the diaspora into the land of Israel to get people there. This actually extends, and this is just a little piece of history you really should know because it helps you understand a lot of things that usually are not related to each other, is that one of the plans that the National Socialist regime has during the 1930s is simply to deport Jews to the land of Israel. And some of that did happen. That basically has to stop once the British blockade around Europe becomes effective. Well, British, mainly British, allied, let's say generally, blockade around Europe makes that impossible for Germans to ship large numbers of European Jews to Israel. But that, but that was arranged between what was by then called the Jewish Agency, which is sort of the predecessor to the state of Israel and the National Socialist regime. The reason being, they didn't see the National Socialists as beyond the pale, we might say, in this way. They saw them as a somewhat similar, very nationalistic, obviously, government 
with whom they could negotiate. The Jewish agency at that time is not a government, but it's functioning like one, right? It's a state in waiting. And in 1947, the same people who staff its self-defense agency, so-called, really an army, right? Or its predecessors to intelligence services, as well as its civil authorities, will all just become those things openly in the newborn state of Israel in 1947. All of that effort, all of that money, all of that settlement, all of that immigration is what sort of opens up or comes into the light or becomes public in 1947. But that there's been a lot of work before then, all in the name of Zionism. Before we talk about Christian Zionism, let me be clear about some different varieties of Jewish Zionism so that it's easier to understand what's going on inside Israel today, right? is that inside Israel, the Likud party, which is somewhat weak now, the Likud party represents what's called revisionist Zionism. That's always been a particularly militant and even sourced from the military version of Zionism that has been as expansionist as possible. So sort of the Zionist version of manifest destiny, right? should what is now the country of Jordan belong to Israel? Revisionist answer is yes. Should should large parts of what is now Syria or Lebanon belong in some fashion to Israel? Because biblically it did or or might have or whatever. The answer, the revisionist answer is yes. Allied with revisionist Zionism within Israel, right? So Zionism is just the basic operating category, right? the basic operating assumption of the state of Israel. You can't really have a state of Israel without Zionism, right? So everybody's a Zionist of some sort, right? Or sort of has to be. The difference between the parties is largely going to be what permutation of that, what version of Zionism do we want? Revisionist Zionism is going to be the support for Likud. Politically, the demographic groups that support that are shrinking in number, which is part of what makes Netanyahu's government and power precarious. Okay. So that's something to know. The other thing to know is that his allies are largely going to come from a group that it originally was really very small, which are the religious Zionists, because some ultra-Orthodox Jews are anti-Zionists, which is why they will sometimes be flown to Iran and put on stage in, you know, the conferences that the Iranian government puts on about, you know, the precise nature of the Holocaust and and lots of other things. The reason being a lot of them believe that it's sinful unless you have identified a Messiah. Right? Obviously they reject Jesus of Nazareth, unless you've identified a Messiah to have a Jewish state. Right. So those are those are religious anti-Zionists. It's also part of the reason that you may or may not have seen video relatively recently of an ultra-Orthodox rabbi in Israel who is purportedly rumored by some to be the Messiah, right? That securing support for what the nation state of Israel is doing right now among the ultra-Orthodox who are both somewhat wealthy in the US and Western Europe, but increasingly numerous everywhere that they are, in Israel, in the US, in Europe, everywhere. Securing their support is is kind of important politically at this point. So that may be one reason that this potential Messiah candidate has surfaced publicly, also even in English language media recently. Those religious Zionists are going to be allied with Likud. They're They're in a bunch of different groups, but because of their very high birth rate relative to all other Jews in modern Israel, they matter more and more and more politically, along with people who are <laughs> sometimes a little dubiously Jewish, but at least were identified during Soviet times as Jewish from from Russia. And those folks are going to be on the right for sure in Israeli politics today, as well as Zionists of sort of a secular but conservative sort. A little note is that they also are very, very, very pro-Trump when their communities in America, particularly in Brooklyn, come into any kind of political calculus. So they're they're kind of secular conservatives, no matter where they go. They're not terribly uh, religiously active, we'll put it that way. Those aren't 
the dominant groups at all at the founding of Israel, because they're not the dominant groups in the early history of Zionism. The dominant groups, which are now shrinking, shrinking, shrinking in Israel itself, as well as in the US, are liberal religious Jews and uh, liberal secular Jews. And those groups are probably going to be in actual political practice, something like a socialist, also in the US, but definitely in Israel, where they're version of Zionism is called labor Zionism. And those are the founding fathers of the kibbutzim, the agricultural communes that are all over Israel. That whole group has a tenor, something like a 1960s American liberal, and is fairly pro-Palestinian, not really necessarily anti-Arab per se. They're the reason that there is any kind of an alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia from the Israeli perspective, right? The Saudis have their own interests. But those liberal Zionists are decreasing in number. They have a birth rate, much like most American Jews who don't really practice a religion and whose Zionism is kind of an, an ethnic preference, right? But when you don't practice a religion, you tend just not to have very many children, no matter who you are, no matter where you live. And so demographically within Israeli politics, they matter less and less and less as time goes on, although they are very important at the beginning of Israel. And they're, they're the reason that at least if you are a Jew, Israel is very much a social democratic state. If you're not a Jew, things are not nearly so good for you because remember the foundation of Zionism is ethnic yeah, or in 19th century terms, racial identity. Therefore, if you're not a Jew, you're just never going to benefit from Israel's existence in the way that a Jew is. Okay, so those are some of your different permutations of Zionism within Israel, as well as within the diaspora, that is all the Jews outside the land of Israel. Something else to know about Zionism, and just to keep in mind here, is that when you're talking about the way that Americans or Britons or Germans or something view what's going on in Israel today, you're dealing with Zionism's fundamental principle, one of them, called shililat hagalut, meaning negation of the diaspora. That's literally what it means. And what it says is that a Jew cannot really be himself outside of Israel. Okay, so this is a just basic principle, and it's what's underneath what I described earlier as some of the the shame or what is called in the discussion of this self-loathing, Jewish self-loathing about the, their people in the diaspora, Max Nordau saying that they're weak and that they could be strong in the sun or ideas like that. In addition to that, it is to deny that Jews will ever be safe in the diaspora, that they are always at risk of extinction. And this is an important thing to understand that I think most Americans don't. And Certainly, I, a lot of Lutheran Christians I've talked to have no practical acquaintance with Jews, either in America or anywhere else, and that makes their thinking about Judaism kind of off base, okay? So, for instance, yes, the Talmud says horrible things about Jesus. The number of Jews who read the Talmud and the number of Jews who believe the Talmud is pretty small. As ultra-Orthodox Judaism's birth rate continues to hold steady, as it generally does, that number will rise, right? So then knowing what the Talmud says about Jesus of Nazareth might be helpful. But on the other hand, most Jews in America don't practice their religion at all. So their understanding of or attachment to Zionism is an ethnic attachment. It's not a religious attachment. I'm not saying they like Jesus for that reason. I'm just saying that their reasons and their thinking are driven by different considerations. There's also an issue where in America, you might think of yourself as Jewish because your dad is Jewish and your last name is Silverberg or something, right? A, a standard Jewish name. But if your mother is not Jewish, let's say your mother is Irish, the state of Israel doesn't consider you a Jew because it's using a certain modern Orthodox Jewish, which is the denomination to which like Ben Shapiro belongs and which is the official rabbinic authority of the modern state of Israel. An Orthodox Jew definition of being Jewish does not include having a Jewish father only. So 
all these things are kind of complex. Because they're complex, that's actually going to be part of my answer in a political way, not in a theological way. But the complexity can't just be left behind for all kinds of reasons. If you leave it behind, I think you also end up with a cartoonish idea of the future. So in a cartoonish version of the future, everybody just supports all Jewish things and all Jews are aligned. Here's the problem. When Jews are aligned on certain things in the diaspora, and this is where I think there is something perceptive about the Zionist idea that the diaspora is a fundamental problem. If you're going to have a Zion, to have something that is not Zion, here's the problem, is that in the diaspora, here's an issue that has definitely come up in the past couple of weeks, is that Jews are overwhelmingly left-wing in the diaspora. Basically, everybody. Your exceptions are very small, okay? Your Russian, quote, Jews in Brighton Beach, your, your Ben Shapiro's of the world, maybe, but very small, right? Jews support abortion and open borders and, and lots of kind of standard just leftist ideas, right? Okay, so they supported the idea that you should be opposed to lowercase w white people when they are doing things like calling the cops on uppercase B black people, right? So that was kind of a standard thing. Well, here's the difficulty. That's a diaspora problem, right? That's not an Israel problem. But now Israel is threatened and Israel is fighting a war with Hamas and other Arab entities, Palestinians and other entities, right? So American Jews are going to support Israel pretty overwhelmingly. Is that going to be favored on the left? No, it's not. Because to the left, both in America and in other countries, Israel looks like another settler colonial state. Now, you may have heard America described as a settler colonial state or Australia described as a settler colonial state. But guess what? In the whole scheme of things, and according to a leftist reading of history, so is the modern nation of Israel, even if American Jews don't think of it that way. That complexity is baked in <laughs> to Jews' awkward position in the diaspora as being very left-wing, but in, in Israel or for Israel's sake, they're very right-wing. So this idea of a political spectrum is uh, sometimes helpful for clarifying things. And here what it clarifies is why American Jews, as well as British Jews or French or Italian Jews, whatever, why they have so much difficulty getting their political positions to be coherent along the usual lines of coalition that they occupy in those countries, right? Where usually they're left-wing, they're allied with the left-wing, they support left-wing things, except when it comes to Jews, and then they support things that along those same coalition lines look right-wing, okay? So that's, that's something about the diaspora that Israelis are very aware of, although partly because of the difficulty of life in Israel, as well as military conscription and lots of other things, an enormous number of Israelis don't live in Israel. So they have made, they are called the Yoradim, those who go down, because when you immigrate to Israel as a Jew, you make Aliyah, you go up, just like in the Bible, you go up to Jerusalem. When you leave Israel, you go down, Yoradim, and if you go down and you stay there, <laughs> well, you have stayed down, <laughs> right? So it's not a good thing, but a lot of people do it because the quality of life in California or Great Britain or something was at least for most Israelis historically better than the quality of life in Israel, which was a, a relatively poor country, okay? So all of that to say, now you know something about the history of Zionism, you know the history of something about the history of Jewish Zionism and, and therefore also of Israeli politics. That's not really the reason why this is such a live issue in the United States of America. I think, however, and I've devoted a lot of time to it today, because I think it's important to know. Because if you don't know it, I don't really think you understand how unstable Israel is as a country. Its demography is not aligned with its founding ideals. Ultra-Orthodox people don't even participate in the military unless they want to. Even though the state relies on near 100% fighting age male military mobilization at all times, and it always has. So you're getting a country that demographically 
was invested in being Jewish in kind of a 19th century European ethnic sense that was not tied to certain religious ideals and relied on mass military mobilization. And you're getting a population that is increasingly committed to being Jewish along strictly religious ideals, which also involves men not really working, to be honest with you. Please look into the ultra-Orthodox and their women working while also trying to raise nine children working outside the home so that the men can study Torah all day and not relying on mass military mobilization. So you have a demographic crisis in Israel and a certain incoherence or craziness to Israeli politics that very few people understand. This is one reason. So here's the political response, and then I'll give the theological response. But the political response is that a lot of people speak about politics particularly Americans about foreign countries, with very little knowledge of them, their language, their culture, or their internal dealings. This also means that we end up asserting things that prove not to be true, and we disturb things we didn't understand were stable. In the case of Israel, something that is fairly stable is a sense of identity that is racial or ethnic, which is one case in which Americans are comfortable, <laughs> I guess, you know, defending that or asserting that we wouldn't do that domestically, at least for many groups, but we will do it in Israel for Jews. What's unstable about that also is that the basis of it is crumbling. And Israelis talk about this frequently. You can read about it. If you have Hebrew, you can listen to podcasts and watch movies about it. But we tend not to understand that. There's sort of an understanding like Israel is just always stable and they always kick butt and they're so great. And some of that has to do with, you know, idea, you know, women of the IDF style propaganda pointed at an American audience. But some of it is just a lack of understanding of other countries, such as we already displayed with Afghanistan and Iraq. So a lot of times in political decision making, there is a great lack of humility and an incapacity to grasp the complexity of what you're interfering in, particularly when you use military force. In addition to that, let's talk a little bit about Christian Zionism and then end where we began with talking about those who are of faith, okay? Because the basic issue in having to pick a side in foreign fights, and the reason that you're supposed to in this case, is because people assign a theological weight to modern Israel that they don't to say, modern Uganda or modern Timor-Leste or lots of modern states, some of them newly born, some of them fairly old, a lot of them remnants of colonial endeavors and generally unhappy along those same lines. We don't assign any particular weight to them because they don't seem to have any biblical weight. The basic theological mistake here that is being made by Christians is not to think that Israel in the Bible is defined by faith. So that's why dispensationalist Christians, who are probably the most numerous version of a Christian Zionist, are going to have multiple ways of salvation because Jews, also in the modern catechism of the Catholic Church, have to get into heaven by another route than through confessing Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Right. So if you're going to have two different Israels with God specially loving both of them, you have to have two ways of salvation. Some of that is the result of Jewish interaction with Christian groups. There were definitely Jewish funders among the funders of the prime artifact or the fountainhead of Christian Zionism, which is the Schofield Reference Bible. But there have always been Christians who have speculated about the necessity of Jews being converted within a certain time period and how that has to precede Christ's coming or whatever the case may be. So let me lay out some biblical things about the Jewish people, particularly from the New Testament, if that's most helpful. And hopefully this will, this will be able to help you, Sarah, as you or anybody listening as you take these scriptures. So a place that I like to go is to Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is talking about his own people. So 
The Bible does not negate ethnicity, but Paul does not claim, nor does Jesus, that their ethnicity will necessarily have to hold any particular amount of ground in the Middle East. Okay, Jesus prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but he does not prophesy that there has to be a nation state of Israel there. He does not seek to reestablish a nation state of Israel free from Roman influence in the Gospels, despite what a lot of people suspect and what his enemies claim he's trying to do. All of that is significant because it means that Jesus is not a Zionist in the sense that we use that term, whether a certain Jewish version of Zionism of some kind, nor is he a Christian Zionist. Jesus is a a Christist, okay? Uh, He is a Christian, and he believes that God is trying to establish a kingdom not of this world. That's pretty important. So when you don't understand what kind of kingdom Jesus is trying to found in the Gospels upon his blood and upon his resurrection, then you don't understand how you should think about modern Zionism. If you don't understand what Paul is trying to say about his own people in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you don't understand what God is saying about uh, the Jewish people today, uh, nor about Zionism, therefore. Paul doesn't have a particular idea that his people need a certain amount of land, okay? It's not an assertion about modern politics or about the Maccabees, who are the predator, who are the model for Theodore Herzl of Zionists in ancient times. They exist in the time between the Testaments. You can read about them in First and Second Maccabees, for example. Paul doesn't endorse that, right? What he says instead is that his people exist and that they have a long history of acquaintance with the Lord who loves them for the sake of their forefathers, What is it about their forefathers that is so lovable? The things that Paul lists, among which are the Holy Scriptures, which were commended to them in the Old Testament, the oracles of God, is faith, right? Their nation is not beloved per se. That's a mistake that uh, Jews, both in the Gospels and in Acts, make, is that somehow they will be beloved simply for, see how this comes full circle, simply for their genetic descent, that they matter simply because of their genetic descent. The issue is whether or not they will have faith. Paul is not frustrated with them, nor does he wish that he could be accursed if it meant their salvation because he's worried about their genetic descent or he's worried about Jewish intermarriage rates in the United States in 2023. He's worried that they don't believe, that he's preached to them and preached to them and preached to them and they don't believe. Okay. Paul goes, therefore, back and forth on these things. The reason to go to Romans 9 is that if you're talking to somebody who is a Christian Zionist, you probably don't want to go first to where Paul says a couple different times in Acts that he's done going to synagogues. Now, he says that, but he doesn't do it. But he's done going to synagogues because he's so frustrated and he's just going to go to the Gentiles. Or where he comments in, off the top of my head, I can't, I'm struggling to remember. I want to say it's in the pastorals, 1 Timothy maybe, or Titus, where Paul talks about the Jewish people being enemies of all mankind. They're opposed to everybody. This is basically Paul's paraphrase of something you get in some of those discussions we had earlier about Zionists talking about Jews among other people and how there's always enmity and difficulty. And Herzl talks about this and Max Nordau talks about this. That Paul says his people are so opposed to everybody, right? They're causing trouble among everybody, enemies of all mankind. Don't go there first with a Christian Zionist because like a lot of things in the Bible, that there are things that the immature cannot handle. They don't know how to take them. Go first to Romans 9, 10, and 11. See Paul's love for his people, right? He does not hate his own nation, even though he is so frustrated with them and sees their role in the death of Jesus as particularly tragic, right? But Paul doesn't hate his nation, therefore he does not despise them. He wishes instead that he were cut off for their salvation, that's Romans 9. But in 10 and 11, what you're going to see is he's going to say, okay, what are we going to do about this, right? And notice that in 10 and 11, Paul doesn't go as do the Zionists of the 19th and 20th century, or the 21st, to a political resolution of the question. Okay, well, how do we how do we fix what's wrong with this nation? What do we do? Let's give them some land. No, Paul says in 10 and 11, let, let's have Christ preach to them. Let's preach to them who is the king of Israel, who is the true son of David. Let them acknowledge him. 
right? And that this will be a marvelous thing and that it will be the the regrafting, right? The the new growth of what is natural to that olive tree and that beautiful image in chapter 11. But how will they grow? How will they grow again? How will they bear fruit again instead of being cut off? It will be through faith. That's really the key thing, right? Is that to be a Zionist, whether Jewish or Christian, is basically to read the Bible without Christ at the center of everything. And eventually that leads to people concocting multiple ways of salvation, which is plainly unbiblical. The issue is always, do they believe in the Christ? Do they acknowledge the son of David? If they do, well and good. Okay, that's all we're really looking for. So you can always go to the Gospels. You can ask what the purpose of Jesus's kingdom is, whether Jesus tries to establish a kingdom there in Israel. There are also some lots of strange ideas we could maybe respond to, but for which we don't necessarily have time today. But the idea that Jesus is somehow coming back specifically to Jerusalem, I suppose, to become what? Prime Minister of Israel, or does he want to become head of state, right? The Israelis have sort of a British parliamentary system. What what does he want? Does he want to become the ceremonial head of state or to be in charge of a cabinet? It's it's a lot of silly ideas, but they all have to do with making Jesus the insurer of a certain Jewish political existence in the Middle East that obviously he could have achieved if he had wanted to, but he did not. Instead, he died for the sins, not of the Jews only, but the sins of the whole world. And he founded that kingdom on his resurrection. And now he sits at the father's right hand, right? So he's not reigning over Israel or waiting to see just what happens in Israel. He's reigning over all things for the good of his body, which is the church, right? Not just Jewish people or not just some certain kind of Gentiles, but everybody, right? That's why, because of that theological answer, you don't have to have a particular position on Israel or Palestine any more than, and it might be the better part of humility not to, but if you want to, just don't say that it's theologically required. Okay, it's not. If you think the Israeli defense forces are cool, go for it, okay? Or you believe that Israel is America's greatest ally. I don't actually think that's borne out by the historical record, but that's a matter of historical or political debate. Don't say that that's theologically required of a Christian, okay? Because it's not. It's not, right? And the modern nation of Israel is not the product of some sort of amazing divine plan to get Jewish people back into Israel because not only the Yoradim, those Israelis who have left Israel, sometimes for good, but also all the Jews who have remained in the diaspora since then disprove the idea that if you found a Jewish state, the Jews will actually want to live there necessarily, right? Some of that has to do, and I, I promised that I would talk about this, so I will do it as we begin to wrap up with what I think is some of the instability or, or political difficulty that is not seen so much from the outside in the modern nation of Israel. And that has to do with something that I mentioned in a previous answer about Ashkenazi Jews versus other ethnicities. Arthur Rupin's theories about Jews originally being a, a European or you could say a Japhethite people, kind of a Eurasian type of people, then mixing with Semitic peoples in ancient times, you know, all of that kind of notwithstanding, you have among self-proclaimed Jews a wide variety of ethnicities your major ones being Ashkenazim, Sephardim, who are sort of originally Iberian, but you might say more Mediterranean Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Middle Eastern Jews. You've got Yemeni Jews who tend to be quite dark, uh, look almost like East African sometimes. So a different lineage there. You have the Falasha Jews from Ethiopia. All of those folks are treated differently de facto in Israel, despite all of them being Jews, uh, de jure, by law in Israel. And that is because Israel, modern Israel, is not just committed to certain forms of Jewish law. It is. It is. And that, that version is, in an American term, modern orthodoxy. But it's also committed to, simultaneously, that 19th century Central European Austro-Hungarian imperial 
lineage of race science, Rassenwissenschaft. And what that means is that the Ashkenazim, along with some of the Sephardim, have functioned as sort of like the upper caste in Israeli history, and certainly very early in Israeli history. And that's part of what you could describe not as the ethnic, they don't really think of themselves as sub-ethnicities, but almost the racial politics of modern Israel. The reason that I mention that now is that this is also part of the difficulty of Israel's existence, is that if it's read by the international left as a white settler state, it itself has its own struggles, <laughs> racial struggles even, particularly between various African Jewish ethnicities or Yemeni, in that case, it's sort of an Arab getting into the Horn of Africa, Jewish ethnicity, with its historic predominant ethnicity, you could say, or race, if you wanted to use it in a different way than a 19th century way of the Ashkenazi from Central and Eastern Europe. So all of that complexity needs to play into this basic point that when we're making assertions, particularly about foreign conflicts, to which we need to have no particular theological commitment, we can make those and you can have them, but I don't recognize that acknowledgement of humility or obscurity or difficulty to what is being discussed when we talk about Israel. So let me wrap up talking about Zionism in this way, is that when we, when we talk about Israel, something you might consider is bringing up another foreign conflict. And you could pick almost anything because people along religious lines or ethnic lines or racial lines or linguistic lines or all kinds of lines have conflicts with each other, even violent conflicts, the world over. Okay, the world over. And if I as a Christian have no particular forever political commitment to some side in those conflicts, right? then why do I have to have some kind of pol desperate, intense political commitment reflected in my social media posts and reflected in the outrage tone that I use? Okay. And this is apart from saying, okay, yeah, uh, one side is great and the other side is horrible. Nobody's ever saying that. And Christians should probably assume that if an atrocity has been committed on one side in a war, probably it's been committed on the other side too. That it's not just that there are two sides to every story. There are always horrible sinners on both sides of every story. So to underestimate humanity is scarcely possible, especially in wartime. If I know that's true, then do I want to talk about something? Not only like I need to invest myself in it, right? Because now I'm paying attention to it or now it's put in front of my eyes. But also, is it really possible for me to be so certain as I, as I claim? Is it really possible for me to intervene so righteously as I suppose that I will? This is especially strange coming from Americans because of our recent two-decade-long history of all kinds of intervention in all kinds of things <laughs> that we didn't understand and that ended up destroying things that we didn't even understand existed. Okay, so, you know, I wish I could find a secular Arab figure who could keep peace between Sunnis and Shiites in, you know, what was Mesopotamia long ago. Well, that person turned out to be Saddam Hussein, right? But it, do you remember all the things that we were supposed to believe he was doing? Some of which I suppose he did, and some of which it turned out he didn't, probably, right? But we got rid of him. So what you're dealing with is you're always walking into a set of immense complexities and you don't have a command by natural law or biblically to fix everything everywhere. In the same sense that you have a biblical injunction to look to the welfare of your own household, you have a biblical injunction to look to the welfare of your own nation, right? You could extend that if you wanted to, to the modern concept of a nation state a country, you know, something that has a passports and issues currency and stuff like that. But a nation biblically is even more limited, right? Think about how Paul's a citizen of the Roman Empire and has certain rights under that Roman Empire, but his nation is the Jews. 
how much more when you're thinking about somebody else's nation thousands and thousands of miles away do you do you have to you don't you don't have to right you don't have to it's not just that you don't understand it but you don't even have to okay the things that we've said for years on this show about media and media consumption you really see born out in times of stress it's harder to see why you should commit yourself more to knowing holy scripture understanding that those who are of the household of faith are blessed and and nobody particularly because of his genetic descent but also that in times of stress you see that people are reverting either just to what they're told right which is why if you're a fox news viewer you probably think one thing about israel and if you are committed and old school democracy now leftist you think a different thing about israel but also because if you are not committed to looking at what the box is telling you then you can also admit that you don't know as much as the box is telling you you know and i don't just mean no in the sense of facts i mean no in the sense of that moral certainty that will justify not only the intervention of foreign troops including american troops if need be or american weaponry if need be although anytime that israel is fighting a war they're using american weaponry right but will justify whatever they need to justify all of that justification that righteousness that certainty comes from consumption of media because you're far away and you can't know yourself and if you were on the ground and you did know you probably wouldn't be quite so certain about foreign intervention okay so this is the great difficulty of handling things like this it's not just that people are certain about their wrong understanding of the bible where they've got two tracks of blessing one having to do with being ethnically jewish and one with faith nope it was always a faith even when most of the people concerned were ethnically they would say israelite right they don't say jewish unless they're talking to non-jews israelite but also you would be dealing you're, you're dealing with the the false certainty of i saw it on tv or i saw it on the internet and that plays obviously long beyond whether it's true or not because people can gain certainty very quickly they are shaken out of their certainties much more slowly right it takes us much longer to learn lessons by experience than to learn talking points by sheer assertion because of that if something is being asserted that's why people are so certain and they're not certain about what they think about rwandan politics and they're not certain about what they think about you know the politics of alberta since the truckers protest because they don't know anything about that in addition to which they're not being told that the bible has anything to say about rwanda or alberta right so i hope that's been helpful to you and that you have some scriptures you can particularly use where paul talks about his own people particularly romans 9 10 and 11 is a helpful place to start as well as looking at what was the purpose of Jesus' coming why did he establish a kingdom in order to respond to these things what that then can relate to okay well what's going on in the old testament well what's going on in the old testament is we're trying to get to jesus the point of the old testament is to get to Jesus Christ to get to a righteous king of Israel or a prophet who knows God face to face this is why if you're not reading the Bible through the New Testament you're not understanding the Bible and Christian Zionism relies on that misunderstanding that creates a two-track set of interests set of divine interests in the world one in people who are ethnically Jewish one in the church right and maybe even as an afterthought in the church rather the church is the reflection is the ingathering of people of all nations including jews of all nations to acknowledge jesus christ as king and that's the point of the entirety of the proclamation of the gospel and of church history and finally in the end of all history is that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that jesus christ jesus of nazareth the rejected christ the cornerstone that the builders rejected which has become the chief cornerstone that jesus christ is king this has been a brief history of power. You know where to find us, or you would not be here. Discernment, boldness, and compassion. Christian virtues sorely needed today. The Biblical Worldview Conference Chicago can help Christians and families for such a time as this. 
Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will address gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and confessing and sharing Christ in a woke culture. All this Saturday, November 4th. Go to worldviewchicago.org to find out more.